0: the ski area really Sat virtually untouched for the better part of two years. There was zero maintenance that was performed. Everything was overgrown. The lodge had leaks in the roof. So imagine just kind of shutting it down and then stepping into a jungle with more ticks than you could possibly count in your lifetime. We were playing Space Invaders on our legs live, you know, like literally right. picking 6, 7, eight, 10, 12 ticks off our legs going up oh just to God. take a look at the rope tow.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm host Stuart Winchester. So fired up to bring you a terrific ski area comeback story today. Before we get there, a reminder to please visit StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the Storm ski newsletter. There is an article on StormSkiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast that includes maps photos facts and tons of additional context on the conversation but there is so much more the podcast is just a small part of the storm the heart of this whole operation is the storm ski newsletter where i am breaking down the world of lift served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the storm ski newsletter stop getting your ski news from facebook Get it from the Storm Ski newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Granite Gorge, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 all the way down to just 2.0. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 132, Keith Kreischer, General Manager of Granite Gorge, New Hampshire. Frankly, I wasn't sure if they could do it. When I heard a group of local investors purchased Granite Gorge near Keene in southwest New Hampshire last spring, I was happy, but not particularly hopeful. Because the truth is, the longer I do this podcast, the more I appreciate how difficult it is to run a ski area under even the best of circumstances. And here was a small ski area lodged in a state full of gigantic ski areas that hadn't operated since its former owner, Fred Baybutt, died suddenly in August 2020. This was a ski area that hadn't spun its only chairlift since at least 2018. And this was a ski area that had gone bankrupt and into the grave at least one time before staying closed for most of the 1980s and 90s. It's tough enough to open an already functioning ski area in an average year. How was the team at Granite Gorge going to rebuild this thing and get it open for skiing in just six months? Well, spoiler alert, they did it. And I could not be more impressed with the job that Keith, who had never held a general manager role before this year, did in making it all happen. Let's hear it. My guest today is the general manager of Granite Gorge, New Hampshire. Shuttered since 2020, the ski area reopened for skiing earlier this year. Granite Gorge sits on 525 vertical feet, served by a double chairlift. Prior to taking the general manager position at Granite Gorge last year, he spent nearly two decades working at Shawnee Mountain, Pennsylvania, Killington, Vermont, Neshoba Valley, Massachusetts, and Wyndham, New York. Keith Kreischer is my guest. Keith, welcome to the storm. This one has been a long time in the making. I am so pumped to finally get this one in the books. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. I am definitely incredibly humbled. And I'd just like to certainly say that this podcast has had such a effect on me personally and incredibly part of my bigger journey. Being able to sit in my excavator and and doing work in the off-season at at Wyndham, being able to hear other general managers and and other guests that you've had kind of share their piece and and their backgrounds really has assisted me with the directions I'm starting to take things here at Granite Gorge.
1: That really fires me up to hear that, Keith. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, I'm really curious because I talked to a lot of super experienced general managers on this podcast. And obviously you have this great resume and you've worked at four different ski areas in four different States prior to coming to Granite Gorge. But what is it like to step up from the ranks into that general manager seat and know it's all on you? What
0: has that been like the last year? Um, Honestly, not as scary as I thought it would be. Uh, which I think is a a pretty good positive. Uh, I think everybody has a tendency to get in their own head a little bit. And, you know, you you really have to be able to step out of your comfort zone and and take more on as you progress, not only as an employee, but as a person. And uh, I I truly feel that, you know, a a lot of people, uh, you know, I'm a fairly religious person, And, you know, I I feel I have my own personal relationship with God and, you know, I have a lot of people that ask for certain things to happen and and they kind of expect it and it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, And in fact, you know, I I feel like when you ask the big guy for something, uh, you get faced with more challenge and, and more things that take you down a path that you're not quite expecting, but it's all in the end in a way to challenge you and to really develop yourself as a person, as a leader, as a manager, and really has kind of set me up as, as the basis for a lot of the, the ways I conduct myself going forward.
1: You know, that's a really interesting perspective, Keith. And you're right. You don't always get what you ask for. And often that's a good thing. And I think a lot of times when folks finally get that general manager job, they're stepping into a very organized situation, right? And and that's a good thing, right? They're taking over for someone who's been there 10, 20, 30 years, who has the relationship with the community sussed out. They have the mountain in good working order. They have good people on their team to lead all the different divisions. You were asked to do something completely different and very, very hard, but probably the hardest thing you can do in skiing, which is to bring a ski area back from the dead, and not only a ski area, but a ski area in one of the most competitive ski markets, I'm going to say in the world, in New Hampshire and New England, when you're sitting there and faced with that, is it just, okay, there's so much in front of me, I'm just going to focus and get done? Because there would be a tendency almost to be overwhelmed by that. but, But does it in a way, even though it's not ideal, almost make it easier because it's a raw slate and you just have to get to work rather
0: than worry about living up to the last guy that was there? Uh, Yeah, you know, when you really kind of break it down, the only thing that I really can rely on is just my previous experience and the guidance and leadership that other managers, other mentors have led the way and set the example for me. And, And it's those relationships that I've formed that certainly made the transition easier. And in regard to, you know, kind of starting something basically from scratch and that's and that's where we started from makes it easier to shape and mold expectations in a way that it sets us up for future success and really be able to dive into that experience and, and lean on those mentors, to kind of help carry me through. So I, honestly, I thought it would be a lot scarier when everything was happening so fast. Uh, there was a lot going on in my personal life at the time of this transition from Wyndham to Granite Gorge. And luckily, working at so many different ski areas from the Poconos to the Catskills uh, and Massachusetts, the one thing I am definitely accustomed to is horrible weather um, <laughs> and also really good weather. You just don't know what you're going to be dealt with. And to to be able to experience the good seasons and the bad seasons has has played an integral part on my decision making and how I carry the morale of the crews and my employees and and how to put them at ease to let them know that, like, listen, we're having a tough time right now in December, but who knows what's going to happen in February or March. And, And that really certainly translated into our first season for sure. (laughs)
1: I mean look getting a ski area going for winter is tough under the best of conditions so I want to reset this and get right into this here tell us what Granite Gorge looked like when you showed up last year and and remind me if that was May or June I I think the sale closed in June and you were there on site pretty quick but but what what were you faced with and what was the condition of the
0: facility when you got there well you know that The ski area really sat virtually untouched for the better part of two years. There was zero maintenance that was performed on on any of the lifts. Our double lift was sitting even longer. Previous ownership had made the move to just operate the tubing park, uh, which is an integral part of the business. And a, a lot of things started to slip away as they kind of progressed in their years of ownership. Everything was overgrown. You could not see Geez, nearly half of the base area buildings. The lodge had leaks in the in the roof. Some of the ramps were falling apart, you know. And, and in fact, to, to even get started on some of the work for our double lift, we actually had to go up before I was even on site to go up and actually have one of our owners volunteered themselves to go up and, and cut down brush. Just so that mm. they would be able to see if the lift could spin. Wow! So it was literally imagine just kind of shutting it down and 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 just leaving it, and then stepping into a jungle with more ticks than you could possibly count in your <laughs> lifetime. Um, I, we all found I ourselves, that. even for the site visit before the auction to take a look at the status and the health of the operation is really where we could start from there. We were playing Space Invaders on our legs uh, (laughs) live, you know, (laughs) like... Literally right. picking 6, 7, eight, 10, 12 ticks off our legs going up oh just to take God. a look at the rope toe. So that, that's really the condition that we we're at. Everything from lights to snowmaking, you couldn't take anything that was told to us that it was truly going to work. We had to really live it real time to see what this place had for its bare bones. So, a lot of folks listening to
1: this are probably hearing, oh, 525 vertical feet, it's a small ski area. I mean, how much work could it be? But I'll tell you, Keith, I just spent the weekend with my family just redoing my very small yard in Brooklyn. And, and all we did was put out mulch and replace a fence and trim the hedges and very minor stuff. But this took us two full days of work and a lot of sweat and guts. And I was exhausted at the end. What, you know, when you're walking onto this property, I mean take us into what the next 5 6 months looked like for you because I'm sitting here on the sidelines thinking about what you have to do and I was like gosh that's a lot of work to get done I don't I mean you did it I didn't know if you were going to be able to but you 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 proved that you did but take us into this what did you have to do to actually execute reopening a ski area in just 5 6 months whatever the amount of time was
0: It was To keep in the back of my mind the ability to stay calm and refined and know that there was going to be an unlimited amount of punches that was going to be dealt and really just keep a solid mind frame going forward that we're going to encounter this stuff and really stay focused on what the end goal is. And when I had my first discussions with the ownership team, I asked, all right, what are we doing? but what is the goal? And they said, we want to be open this winter. It was okay. (laughs) 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 All right, let's do it. That's our goal, right? Uh, And we set that goal up for ourselves. And how do you eat an elephant? It's, It's one bite at a time. And in fact, when my personal boots arrived on the ground August 1st. uh, And after my family and I made the move, I had that moment where I I looked at everything and it's just like, oh, geez, where do I start? And I literally just grabbed a weed whacker and I cut down the grass right around the main sign and and started to make at least the front area by the road just look a little bit more presentable that, hey, somebody's here and actually doing something. And then we, we attacked it from there. So what did that look
1: like? I mean, the trails are overgrown. I'd imagine the lifts weren't working. You have holes in the roof of the lodge. I, I, you know, I don't even want to think about what condition the snow guns were in. I don't know if you had a snowcat. Just take us through the list. I mean, what, what had to be done and how did you do it?
0: Uh, I will. I'm going to try my best not to go down through some some rabbit holes, but there's a, definitely a story that that stuck out to me dealing with this. And it, it really started with the site visit for the auction. I had a, a really old Ford Taurus that I was commuting to from New York. We just had the uh, whole assessment of, of what was going on. And uh, I ended up blowing my starter on my vehicle in Wilmington, Vermont. And I, I gave one of the ownership, uh, the partners a call, and hey, listen, This is not a case of my dog ate my homework, but I'm going to be late and I'm trying to resolve this. Uh, I arrive on on site and I'm a big movie buff. And I noticed when I finally pulled into the parking spot, I was probably about an hour and a half late. I changed the starter in my car on the spot and I looked down and there's a Red Bull can in the parking lot. I opened up my car door and I was literally swarmed by probably about 30 butterflies that were flying all up around getting juiced up on Red Bull (laughs) And it was like this perfect foreshadowing moment, just like a movie where it's just like, I know this road is going to be awful and it's going to be hard to get through, but at the end, hopefully it will be rainbows and butterflies <laughs> It'd be totally <laughs> That's worth beautiful. it. So that really kind of stuck with me. And before I even landed on site, you know, I had the help of Tim Feaster from Feaster Mountain Services who had experience with our double lift here and had done work for the previous ownership in the past. And he actually beat me on the ground. So a lot of this stuff really got started to be tackled even before I could even get here and, and to get going myself. And, and that's where, you know, we really relied on our team of, of ownership to try to get done as much as we could.
1: So who is that ownership group? Because what we, we can get a little bit into the history here. You know, Granite Gorge has a, a really... Troubled history, and it was shut down twice for quite a long time. It came back a few different times and had been closed before you got it for a couple years. So, just tell us who the current ownership group is and how they came to own Granite Gorge.
0: Our primary investor is Perry Cohen, who's the son of Rick Cohen and he owns uh, CNS Wholesale Grocers. And there is no affiliation to CNS. Brian Granger, Mike Davern, Randall Walter, and Ron Wright, uh, who is the the president of the ownership group. Um, and we had kind of come together as a team because I was all already doing my due diligence. Um, I saw the ad out for, in Sam Magazine, that this place was actually up for sale back in 2013. And I've always strived to kind of learn as much as I can about all aspects of the operation and Taking points and, and information from the leaders who were above me. So, this really started as kind of like a side gig, and it all kind of culminates on, on how we met each other. So, I started doing my own due diligence with the Bay Butts directly. And as time went on, it was just something for fun and, and try to better myself to learn about the operation. And the more we went through and, and got information, you know, it really came to the realization that this wasn't going to be really in the cards, so to speak, with the way everything was kind of laid out, but didn't give up. Uh, I stuck with it. And in my diligence period, you know, I, I was always looking at would the ski area be successful just as a standalone ski area, uh, which is the obvious answer would be no. So I started to explore different options of what we could do during the summertime. I was already building Wyndham's Bike Park and getting trained from the Gravity Logic crew and really trying to grow out that operation at the time in any way I could help. And on the side, I ended up reaching out to Mike Davern, who is now presently one of our owners. And it was really just that he was one of the presidents of the local mountain bike chapters, he went out of his way to raise money and to lead the way for the city of Keene to build their bike park. So I thought to myself, who better than to reach out to, to get a grasp on what the market's like and what they have going on in that in that city that I immediately fell in love with just on a few trips out here to, to visit the Bay Butts. Little did I know he was one of 20 potential investors that also had the same idea in their minds that they really wanted to resuscitate this area and bring it back to the community. So, literally, after, probably the day after our conversation happened, I got a phone call from Dave Morin, who was one of the original managers for the ski area. Uh, and I had met him through Cutter's Camp, through Sam Magazine, a few years back when I was working at Neshoba Valley at the time. And he said, Keith, you know, are you trying to buy Granny Gorge? And I was like, Oh, yeah. How do, you, how do you know about that? He goes, well, you talk to Mike Davern and they're pretty stoked because we've been trying to figure out who you are this entire time for years because the Bay Butts always mentioned there was another interested party. And, and it really came down to a phone call that happened that night where I got introduced to Ron Wright, who is the president of the ownership. And he was curious to see what my vision was and what my goal was for the property. And we really just hit it off. And from there, you know, all of these guys who have put forth their time, effort, and energy have been outstanding. And they just wanted to see this area back in the hands of the community and We became really teammates going forward on on how can we really make this thing possible. So when finally push came to shove and John Maybutt gave me the call that they're going to be listing up the area for auction, it was about almost a year later where I gave Ron Wright that phone call. Hey, apparently it's go time and that they're going to be putting this place up for auction and let's get our ducks in a row and and see what we can make of this.
1: I mean, that is just an awesome story, Keith. And I want to underscore a point here that you've... Alluded to, but but not really said. But I want I want to say it for you is that you know I have a lot of folks who reach out to me and they they're sort of up and coming in the ski industry and they like listening to this podcast because they get to hear folks' stories, right? And you did a couple different things simultaneously that I think are really instructive to someone who wants to run their own ski area one day. And and one of those is you just kept grinding and working on your skills and working at a bunch of different ski areas and learning from a bunch of different folks at the same time you created your own opportunity by seeing the ski area that was lost in the wilderness, that was having a hard time that had a lot of potential that no one was really realizing, including the owners at the time. So you, you put it out there and when the time came, you were sort of the inevitable person to run it because you'd set that up for yourself. I think that's really neat. I mean, was that always in the back of your mind that someday you would like to run Granite Gorge?
0: I think, you know, for me, it didn't even start with Granite Gorge. It really started... Back in the day with a place called Tanglewood that is now shuttered in northeast Pennsylvania. Didn't know it at the time, but I, I went on for a hike with my wife and kinda of explored that property that's right near my hometown where I grew up. And that place went up for sale. And you know, we kind of started digging around there. We also took a trip over to Maple Valley in Vermont and I met with the owner there, Nick Mercedes, and at the time and kind of looked into that. And it's always been at the forefront of my mind that I wanted to be in a position to take control of a ski area and, and really grow it out to be on my on my own and really kind of like that entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, and really the thirst for knowledge and betterment, which really kind of set me up for this. And once I found Granite Gorge, I think you hit the nail right on the head. that The potential of this place is really good. And it's a dream just in itself to be granted the opportunity to, to try to bring to fruition for this community. And it really started back when I started playing this old game on the PC desktop called Ski Resort Tycoon, where you got to start with a rope toe and then build your way up. And, you know, I didn't try cheat codes. I only tried to just do it and and try to make it work financially. And yeah, it's a game. But at the same time, these little seeds were getting planted in my head that, you know, maybe one day this could be a thing. And uh, I really, like you said, just I just kept grinding. And the conversation, I don't know how many times came up over the years, even with my wife, Janelle. Are you really serious about this, you know, and could you really make it work? And you, you say that to a fellow co-worker when you're working in the, at a ski area, you know, one day I'm going to own my own resort. And, and you know, they kind of laugh you off, you know, and there was certainly enough of that and other people who supported and like, sure, you know, you'll get that one day. And there was other mentors that I had for sure that were just like, no, it's so easy. You could do this. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's really just, like I said, going back to the relationships and the setup that really kind of set me up down this path and just grinding it out. And just, you got to have faith. If you don't have faith that something can work, you're not going to be able to manifest that into something.
1: Well, you've certainly manifested it into something at this point. I want to center us on a couple things here, Keith. So you mentioned a a few things, the Bay Butts. So tell us a little bit more about the Bay Butts who owned the ski area previously. And then also you keep talking about the community and I think you're referring to Keene. So tell us about Bay Butts and tell us about Keene
0: and the relationship between all those things and the ski area. So when I first uh, met Fred and John, it was kind of just chatting and getting to know them in the ski area and what they had done. And I'll tell you what, in the beginning, when they took Granite Gorge on, there was virtually nothing. And, and they spent a lot of their own money and resources into trying to make this a good staple for the community and to really grow the love of skiing. And as as we worked down the road and trying to figure out different pathways and, and what that could mean to finally getting my foot in the door, we discovered a lot of different things that were layered into hurdles, more or less. They were a very successful construction company. It was Baybuck Construction that ended up facing some financial difficulty And as their business did well, they invested in the ski area. And then when it didn't do so well, you know, they scaled back a little bit. And when push came to shove, the construction company ended up going under a lot of the things that were tied to that construction company was also tied to the ski area as well. So there is a number of liens that were placed onto the property as collateral for some of the projects that they were working on, which ultimately kind of kicked the can down the road for so many years and, and how they could work to try to resolve those in order to get a clear title for the sale. But they started with pure heart and and good intentions for the community invested a lot of money into this place just to to relocate a chairlift and add the snowmaking that they did. And they really kind of pieced it together as they went along, not necessarily with a grand master resort plan, which they had in the back of their minds of where they wanted to get to, but making adjustments like adding the mid station onto the double because they didn't have the ability to expand snowmaking to the top just quite yet. And, you know, they made their adjustments where they could and they, they just started with a rope toe and without a lodge and then they they added the lodge a couple years into the process and you could really see the growth and the community really embrace the development of the ski area. But ultimately when it came down to it, it's an immense undertaking for what we're doing, but I really got to give them the credit. It's a big undertaking to start it from scratch and to add snowmaking and to do the permitting and, and everything else that, that goes along with the development of a ski area. You know, you could definitely tell in the beginning they, they were doing things right in terms of the infrastructure that they put into place, which is now the bare bones of of what we're using to try to bring this area back.
1: So you're right down the road from Keene. Just talk about the opportunity to serve that community.
0: Not just Keene, but even the Northeast in general. You know, there's something that I learned in, in Massachusetts in my time at Neshoba Valley. And it's really how outdoor recreation is just ingrained into the Northeast. And, and to the people out here and, and one of the things that jumped right out at me in, in terms of keen is every morning i wake up and there are people up at like 4:30 in the morning here i am thinking this is me but people are out there riding their bikes they they have their lights on they you know they're they're walking they're running uh health is so much at the forefront of you know, the Keen area's minds and getting out there and and not just moping about, you know, the horrible cold weather of the Northeast, you know, they're actually out there enjoying themselves. And the community here is just unbelievable in terms of their support and how much You know, when we first announced, even with the option that, you know, new ownership was coming, the social media was just flooded with how can we help? How can we volunteer? We really want to see this come back and stronger and better than ever. And it really just spoke volumes to me, my family, and and most certainly just you can see it in the partnership, that the partnership of owners. They want to be able to get out of work and just strap on their boots and, and go race and come ski. And, you know, when it's convenient for them and not have to travel too far in order to do that. So really kind of embracing that community is at the forefront of our minds and knowing that we can expand and do all this other stuff. But if we're, if we're not doing right by the community first, that is the bedrock of what we need to establish. And we're not going to be successful without our local community's support. Yeah, it's a
1: fair point, Keith, because you're there in Southwest New Hampshire. So you're really very close to Vermont and you're also very close to Massachusetts. And zooming out here, the six New England states combined are a fraction of the size of Colorado, yet there's almost 90 ski areas there. And it is a really, really, really hard place to do business. It's a hard place to be a ski area. I mean, in your state alone, you're up against Waterville Valley and Loon and Bretton Woods and Cannon and all these really well-capitalized, really established, really big, really beloved ski areas. And when I look at Granite Gorge's history... It's easy for me to understand how it didn't make it and how it failed twice. It's harder for me to understand how it's going to find its niche now and and how it's going to succeed. So how is this time different, Keith? Why is Granite Gorge set up to succeed where the ski area has for decades really had a hard
0: time finding its place in the New England ski scene? Yeah, no, I think that's a really fair question and, and one that I, I get faced with a lot. And, you know, we talk about potential and everything that this place could be, but it really comes down to the difference is, and with all due respect to the Bay Butts and the undertaking that they had trying to resurrect Pinnacle Ski Area, which was the original name of the mountain. From my research and my deep dive into the operation, I just think it was... A management style and and how they conducted the operation that really put it in a way where I knew we could be successful with rebuilding it from the ground up with a clear focus and really trying to grow a business uh, with policy protocol procedure and really under a new leadership would be different. You know that
1: leadership, those owners. It sounds like they're really committed to the ski area. I, I think. Anyone who buys a ski area has really good intentions, right? But you have to be willing to provide the resources because you can make anything work with enough money, right? That's a given, but getting that money is not. So let's go back here to what you were faced with when you showed up on August 1st last year and had all this work ahead of you and clearing the trails and getting the lifts going and getting the lodge back in shape and getting the parking lot and and the bridge and everything else fixed. What kind of resources did that take? And how did you go about talking to ownership
0: about what you needed and did they ultimately provide what you needed? Sure. I will go back to what I was saying earlier too, is, you know, when we, we did the site investigation before the auction, you know, there's a, a lot of things that stood out to us, you know, that could potentially be a challenge. And, Sure enough, after we got going, a lot of those challenges really stood out for sure. You know, one being the bridge. And it's a a good example of just looking at it. You begin to question, what is the longevity uh, of this thing? And it's such an integral part to just get people across safely. The ownership wanted to make sure that we were doing things right. And when it came down to footing the bill, what was at the forefront of our mind was safety inclusion, and affordability. Those were our three pillars that we came together as a group with to make sure that with those three things in mind as our guiding light, so to speak, we didn't want to skimp out on anything safety and making sure that these resources and assets were brought back into a good condition to make sure that we could safely welcome everybody back. And we knew it was going to take quite a bit of money. And we also knew it was going to take a lot of time, which we we didn't have. And in fact, going back to the bridge, when we had the engineers come in and and do an evaluation on it, a couple words that you don't want to hear is imminent catastrophic failure. (laughs) Mm. Oh my gosh. So the, over time, the Otter Brook, which we draw our snowmaking off of, and it, it runs the, the length of the property along Route 9 and the ski area, had eroded the abutments considerably and really ruined the structural integrity of, of the bridge. So really, when you're looking at it, yeah, my boots are on the ground August 1st, but it really limited us on how we could get resources across the bridge. And, and really, as an ownership and myself together, we really tried to tackle the most important things First, as they came, so we, you know we drew up plans on how to do repairs. You know we worked with the state very closely on on how we could do that responsibly and really facilitate those changes. I think it started with just the understanding in regards to to ownership that these guys are, are really established within the community and have already put forth so many good things into the community, but they also have their full-time jobs and and their livelihoods. And as much as they wanted to have Granite Gorge come back to life, they wouldn't be able to step aside and leave their main responsibilities to go run a ski area, so to speak. So that's really where we aligned. And it's really such a dream come true. I mean, I I don't know any other way to kind of put this with the ownership that I have on my team because I specifically went out on a limb and when talking with Ron Wright. You know, I specifically outlined what my shortcomings were, or at least what I felt they were, and he really kind of went out and handpicked an ownership group that could really complement my shortcomings and really be able to assist with a lot of these logistical hurdles that we knew we were going to face. And that way, it was a clear understanding that it was going to take quite a bit of finance to come up with the funds to rejuvenate the area but all we're willing to really put it in for the community and and really grow the place out so i can't speak highly enough for the relationship that we have together i really do consider myself part of the ownership group and really want to Make sure that you know I stay responsible as possible because there's two parts to this story, and it's it's getting it back into the hands of the community, but also making sure that we do so in a fiscally responsible manner, so that way you you know we can continue to grow the place out into the future.
1: I think it's hard for anyone, Keith, to admit their shortcomings. You know, we as Americans, I think, are, are trained that you need to be learn you know very self reliant and teach yourself everything. But if you think about all the stuff that goes into a ski area. You have all the physical plant, which we've been talking about. You have the lifts and the trails and the bridge and the, and the lodge. And there's a lot of labor involved in that and some expertise as well to bring those things back online. And then you have the whole digital sphere and you know the website and the social media and the finance part of it. And, and then you have the personnel part of it and the HR and the management and the safety piece you were talking about. So th- there's a lot of different layers here. So, what were you able to identify as your own shortcomings, and and how did you find the people who could do those things well? Because that's an important part of leadership, right? Is is figuring out who who are the people who can do the things that you can't do?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I find myself in a position now where I feel even more closer to Chip Siemens at Wyndham and. Ted Davis, the director of mountain operations than I have ever been before. And we've talked a few times here and there, but now that I'm in the position that I'm in, some of the things that they had told me really have resonated (laughs) for sure. And knowing that one person can't do it And it's the relationships that I've been able to build in the past that really kind of carried me through with the other aspects and my, my shortcomings to really rely on their expertise on what it is that we need to bring to the forefront. And while I don't have experience with that, you know, the one thing I was taught, well, if I don't know, you need to find somebody who does. And I've worked really hard to try to surround myself with people who are really capable and are, you know, have that ability to learn and really kind of lean on their expertise to develop this stuff. And I'll I'll tell you what the number one person that I've leaned on the hardest is my wife, Janelle. I consider ourselves, she's definitely my co-general manager. She may not have that title and titles right now are just frivolous to me because in such a small area, everybody's got to do something to contribute. But she really stepped up, not only just moving states in this undertaking, but really dove out of her comfort zone to do a whole lot of learning. And really, it was good to help us identify what we needed, how we needed to do it and do it in a way that will keep things simple. And I think that was just the, The goal of the attack for facilitating the website, tickets, pricing, everything that you needed to do the work on to develop on the side. So really when you're faced with all the stuff that you have to do with the physical Part of things, you know, a lot of that stuff came down to outsourcing in the beginning and finding local contractors who could be available to tackle some of the bigger picture items like the lift and, and the lodge and really like utilize those resources. And then really that internal battle of here's what we need to fix, here's what we don't have, and here's what we need, and how to work on that goal. I had a good friend, John Damon, who assisted us with our web design, who had done work for Neshoba Valley, uh, who I'd met for back in those days. Definitely a big shout out to Chris Kitchen, who is one of the lead managers there at Neshoba Valley too. I consider him a close personal friend and mentor. He always from the beginning has, ah, dude, you got this, like, no problem, just do this. And just the way he would deliver his his information was just inspiring that, you know, maybe I do got this. And other people like my good friend, Rich Higgins, also from the show, but from a lift maintenance standpoint, really being able to draw on their expertise and get good, clean communication of this is what we need to go and do really kind of guided me to make the decisions that we needed to do to get set up. But ultimately what it came down to is my wife really stepped up her game and stepped out of her comfort zone to develop these. I mean, we were really building a business from nothing, you know? So not only are we bringing back a scary, but we're starting a new business. So policy procedure, like none of this stuff was, was drawn up. So Being able to rely on all of that experience and assist me to make the best decisions that we could really is what got us into the position of being able to operate in year one.
1: And you did it. You landed the plane against considerable odds. Congratulations. Now that it's May, we're recording this on May 30th, so you've had a little time since you closed up Granite Gorge. How was that first comeback
0: season? It was Awesome. Uh, um, Just, it's not cliche. You know, I've always done this for the joy and amusement of others. And you really have to step back. And I always go back to a quote from one of the guys that I had worked with at Wyndham and keeping everything into perspective. We are not in the business of killing people. And we're not in the business of saving people's lives. We're not EMTs. We're not firefighters. You know, our job here is to provide an experience for people to escape and to have fun and and recreate in a safe way so that they can enjoy the outdoors healthy. And we really needed to have a culture set up within our own staff to make sure that that is at the forefront of our minds and to not take things too seriously and and to make sure that when we reopened our doors to the community that they came back feeling like it was home. And to be able to see that kind of happen and step by step, you know, honestly, you know, I had unrealistic goals to get everything open all at once. And it ultimately did not happen that way. And it's for the better now that I can look back and see where we started from and then not even be able to cross a bridge yet to the point where we were able to welcome guests and employees back and over the bridge. We ended up opening things one step at a time. We didn't open with rentals right away. We didn't open up with instruction right away. You know, even even the bar and restaurant was a little bit delayed, but Each week, we took another bite out of that pie and expanded on the operation. And breaking it up into pieces like that with keeping realistic expectations in year one was so important to make it successful that it really set us up to really have good projections and good data for us, allowed us to make mistakes and to really set us up really going forward into year two. So as you sit back and you reflect
1: on all the work you've done, And you brought this thing back to life and you've given it a third life, I guess. How much different is your mental state this summer knowing you've done it? And obviously you can't take your foot off the gas. You have to keep moving forward. There's still a ton to be done. But what's your mindset like this year compared to last year? And what are you focusing on as you go into your second season?
0: For me personally, I am trying my best to follow the infinite lifestyle. And, and that meaning is that, you know, you can set a big goal and say you reach that goal and you're good. Now you're like, now what? And for me, sure, getting open in year one was a big priority. You know, it was a promise that I made to ownership that we would we would try to do and, and tackle. We got to that goal. But in the back of my mind, it's way, way beyond that. And in my eyes, to be honest with you, I'm not even successful yet. There's still such a long road ahead to be able to get to that profitability point and and be able to reinvest that capital with sure revenues that we really haven't been able to take our foot off the gas, as you said. And you really have to look at the long game and making sure that all the decisions that we're making really are going to be setting us up for the long-term success and vitality of the ski area. And also making sure that we're, we're taking care of our employees, along the way. I'm a big believer that employees come first and really trying to establish that in year one is at the forefront because it was their help and their work that really carried us into uh, making good vibes and making sure that when we did welcome people back, that they understood that this is a long-term commitment and that we're going to make these things happen.
1: I think having that patience and that perspective sometimes can be the hardest part here, Keith. And I want to go back to all these mentors that you've referred to who really helped you out over the years. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've worked at four different ski areas in four different states, all very different places. Shawnee caters to the beginners in the Poconos. Killington, obviously biggest and busiest ski area in the east. Neshoba Valley, a little bit more like Shawnee, but for Boston area. And then Wyndham is more of a resort, pretty high end for New York. Really nice, really well run. Ski area, very well capitalized, really great ownership group there, obviously. So take us through this progression, Keith, and the mentors you've had along the way and, the, and and what they taught you
0: as you've moved from place to place and state to state. Sure. I will try to keep this as short and sweet as I can, <laughs> um, <laughs> because there have been so many good people that has had a tremendous effect on my life, starting with, I guess, Shawnee. And going forward, I was never really good in school. Honestly, C student, I did what I needed to do to get by. You know, I had my own issues to try to overcome and learning to love learning. I think that's the best way to to start. One of the things that kind of shot out to me was the love for snowboarding and skiing, especially terrain parks, is really what kind of kindled that fire, which ultimately led to exploring schools and colleges that would help facilitate that dream of owning a skieria one day, which was always at the kind of like the forefront of my mind. And then, of course, you know, I grew up at a time where I'm kind of like that in-between generation where I grew up outside getting dirty, building forts, and, you know, I didn't have cable TV till I was 16, into the point where all this technology really started coming into the forefront and asking girls out on instant messenger and stuff like that. So being able to guide going forward and having that background... And really kind of grow that vision for the first time, because that's something I was finally able to commit myself to. So while I did all that work and stuff like that, of course, you you look at it now where try to look at the value of college and and what that would be. And then you try to sit down with your parents and tell them that, hey, uh, I want to spend, you know, like maybe 90 to $100,000 to get a degree in resort and hospitality management when you're getting C's and and B's and all that other stuff in, in your grades, Got shot down pretty quick. You know, my dad was just straight up like, no, if you want to take on that type of debt, you got to really prove yourself first. So that's ultimately what led me to Shawnee Mountain in Pennsylvania where I worked one season and the deal was I go work at a for a year and if I liked it and exceeded at it, that we'd have the discussion to try to get into school and, and really pursue this passion. So that's exactly what I did. I ended up writing a constructive email because I was, you know, I was riding around in mountain Creek in New Jersey, which I consider my, my home mountain, which had an Epic park program at the time. Um, Me too. I love Creek. Oh dude. So sick. I mean, th- yes. th- th- yeah. th- the job they continue to do now is even more special. So Um, I don't think people realize how good they have it compared to when I was growing up, but it was really inspirational for me. And, you know, I took one trip to Shawnee and noticed they had the inventory and all these features that, you know, could be set up really well. So I just wrote an email of really constructive criticism, but for the first time, not bashing them, just like offering ways I could potentially help, which ultimately led to a job. So I ended up being the only park crew guy at Shawnee, learned about snow cats and snowmaking and the intricate details. It really just sparked that passion. So after one year there, I decided to set my sights on Green Mountain College and specifically their Killington campus for resort and hospitality management, which now has Green Mountain has ceased to exist now. And the resort and hospitality management program actually got picked up by Castleton State College, which is fantastic. That The program continues to lead on because that was really the lab in which I was able to grow a lot of of skill and, and guidance from Frank Pauze and, and that program. And So many other of my classmates have now risen the ranks in in other resorts, and even especially at, at Killington, and to see their growth and development has been so awesome. So that's where I ended up spending three years. I worked in terrain parks in my first year. My second year, I made a weird jump to housekeeping. did not expect to, to land in that position. In the summertime, I would be working at the local golf course when I wasn't at school. So I got a lot of golf course maintenance and management that way. Also while up in school on a side job to bring some cash in. I would also be working in food and beverage and banquets and learning as much as I could about those operations. And then my my third year, because it's a, it's a trimester program, you wrapped up all of your education in three years, was able to get into grooming for the first time and really kind of grew my skills from there. After graduating, I put my resume out there for probably about 50 different resorts. And from there, really only heard a couple of responses back and really seeing what kind of loans that I would have to be paying off over that, that time, you know, it wasn't really Exciting to think about, you know, this could actually be a lot tougher than I expected. That's when I ended up meeting uh, Al Fletcher Jr. and Chris Kitchen over at Neshoba Valley and took that leap and moved with my fiance at the time, Janelle, to Massachusetts in Westford and went from the biggest ski area in the Northeast to virtually one of the smallest ski areas. And I think that jump between sizes really kind of put things into perspective and and set me up for future endeavors. At Neshoba, I was able to build out their park program. I was able to finally prove myself and the amount of knowledge and mistakes. And it was just such a perfect lab. For somebody just coming out of college to be able to grow, I learned welding there for the first time and really be able to manifest vision for the first time and implement it into a plan and into really leading a department for the first time. Also honing into my grooming skills that I learned so much from from Killington to be able to transpose that into the park for the first time was huge. And with the parks and everything, it really integrated so many facets of the operation between marketing, even food and beverage and events, tickets to sales, instruction and safety and and risk management really bolstered my growth from there. And then after five seasons, it it was a small area, but I also got to learn about volume. And it's amazing to me that a place like Neshoba, 25 miles outside of Boston, could do like 300,000 visits in a year, you know, it's they crush it. They absolutely crush it over there. And it really kind of put things into perspective that it doesn't have to be the biggest ski area or the smallest ski area. As long as you have that niche and you you serve your guests in a good way, you know, you can make things successful. And I actually really started to fall in love with small ski areas at that point at Neshoba because what a fantastic operation. And I really commend them on the relationships I've been able to grow and really develop over the years and the opportunity that they gave me to really build and develop my skill as, as a park builder. And over my time there, the five years, I kind of reached that threshold of, okay, now I've done this. You know, it's hard for me to be able to move up. And I really started to get the thirst kind of involved to build upon what I had learned and expand my horizons, which at the time we were, we were about to welcome my first child, Ethan, into our lives. And we were just kind of looking through the same classifieds and my wife saw Wyndham had an opportunity for a park manager position. So really just kind of threw it out there and and ended up talking with Chip Siemens for the first time. And we got introduced and decided that the time was right to make a move a little bit closer to home, which was Pennsylvania, and maybe closer to family and really see if I could take my skills to the next level at Wyndham, where I spent eight years.
1: So you go through this whole process and you put in the time put in the work. And as I said, you know, you show up at Granite Gorge and there's so much to do. And I, I think one of the most intimidating things that you would have had to face is getting that double chair back up and running, right? Because the whole ski area kind of lives and dies on that machine and it came to Granite Gorge used. It hadn't been run in several years. So, you know, building out all that experience that you had and with all those mentors, sitting on your shoulder and and whispering in your ear, how did you approach that project? And how did you ultimately get this lift back up and running in time to be of service in, you know, starting in February of this past season?
0: Yeah. And for that, out of all my experience, where I lacked the most was in lift maintenance. And it's something that I could definitely say from Ted Davis's perspective at at Wyndham even tried to help me out and put me in a position to help run Lyft operations for a better part of a winter when I was working at Windham, because he also realized at the time, you know, that was kind of like my weak point, so to speak, and, and my lack of knowledge. You know, I know the basics for what the parts and all, all the things do, but to actually be able to be in it and do the physical work, I did not. So that's where we really relied heavily on Tim Feaster and his crew, who already had that knowledge of the lift and had done work with the Bay Butts previously. And in fact, he beat me to it. As, as soon as we won the auction, we hit the ground running. He was there doing the work first and knew what needed to be done, what needed to be upgraded. And one of the challenges that we face is that because the lift sat idle for so long in the eyes of the state of New Hampshire, it's like it never even existed. So we had to update everything to reflect the new codes that were put into place, the NCB77 codes. And really, Tim took the lead on making sure that all all of those things happened. We also worked very closely with Ross Stevens, who is the lift's engineer, and really dove into the intricacies of what it would take to get that lift back. Uh, and, and once we came up with that game plan, it was full steam ahead, even before we could get you know myself and my and my team on the ground. Uh, so that really is what got us into a, a head start to tackling that. And then you know we again, just like anything else, we had to take it off one bit at a time. And Tim still had other obligations for other areas that he had to attend to and take care of. He has a lot to manage for himself. And ultimately we were able to get all of the upgrades and the testing that we needed to do with help along the way. And we got the job done take us into the decision to remove the mid-station. Yes. One that is a really good question. And, you know, a lot of people in the community that were here, man, it was it's really a 50-50 shot of what you were going to get for the expectation for that mid-station. A lot of people loved it. Uh, a lot of people did not like it so much. One of the things that stood out for me was, was one visit, uh, I believe it was back in, 2016, where they got a big snowstorm, a good three feet. And I called up the Bay Butts and let them know that I was, this is a perfect opportunity to really ride and explore the potential of the mountain with it being 100% covered. And the first thing that really jumped out to my mind was that mid station. And while it served a purpose in the past for them, it was really tight with another trail emptying out into it we're talking about maybe a cat pass wide where that unload station would empty out also an early season, only running that from mid station down and, and skiing from that point, you, you still have beginners on this lift that are, are going up to the top and not everybody can just navigate a mid station unload. And I, I heard stories about a lot of people going up and to the top of, of the lift. So faced with those factors, you know, I, I really evaluated it as just uh, a limiting safety factor for us and, and streamline the operation. And not to mention, we're not a very big hill to begin with. Like you said, we're about 500 and some odd feet of vertical. So really to make a good comeback at that point, it's really kind of capitalizing as much as we could on the overall layout of the mountain. It was just the, the best decision that we could make to, to take that out and build upon that. And also part of that decision is... The amount of stress that's put on the compression tower for the lift to actually be able to install that midstation limits our uphill capacity and the speed at which we can run that lift. So, you know, I really worked with our engineer, Ross, to come up with a plan to let's take out the midstation in year one, service to the right to the top and this coming summer or fall, really do the finished work to take out that compression tower, which will really help us out in the longevity of the lift and make adjustments to where, you know, the components aren't under so much stress and we can expand the longevity of the lift and and make those adjustments in year two after we got operating.
1: So you mentioned that they had, the Baybutts had put in that mid-station because they didn't have snowmaking to the top. I know you have snowmaking to the top now because I was there when the ground was barren around it and you had a nice trail from top to bottom. Did you have to put that snowmaking in? Had the BayButs finally managed to put it up? Just talk to us about snowmaking, what your footprint and system looks like now, and ultimately, Keith, what your goal is. Because I, I think in New Hampshire, you got to have 100% snowmaking these days to really make it long term.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Snow is everything. It's absolutely everything. And one of the things that Nishoba taught me was, you know, a train park builder's more or less mind frame is there can never be enough snow. We want to, to build all the cool stuff that we can. And I was instantly taught, well, if you want it, you go make it yourself. Right. So... <laughs> That's exactly what I did. So I know for sure that you're only as good as the product that you could put out there. And in our climate, you are nothing without snowmaking. But that does not mean to say that you don't have to keep the fiscal responsibility at the forefront of your mind when making the decisions. So for us, the infrastructure was put into place. They tried to go automated with their valves and and isolation systems for the pipe. They did finally get snowmaking to the summit, and they also installed a 750-gallon-per-minute variable speed drive pump to draw directly out of the Otterbrook for water to get up to the mountain. Unfortunately, some of the guns were taken out prior to our arrival and kind of left us starting from scratch. And snow guns are not cheap. They are incredible Pieces of equipment that you need to survive in this industry. And we really took into account and and working with HKD and SMI specifically to what can we bring in for our firepower that will match the output and the capability of what our pump could produce. We didn't wanna overspend and get all these guns that we couldn't turn on all at once. And then really when we finally got it going and started testing our system, we discovered leaks and repairs that had to be made to that system. Also discovered that the automation system that the Butts had installed was so far gone that in fact, they're, they're no longer usable. The electronic components are, were completely fried, but we were able to you know, open up those valves and get water flowing to all of the areas of the mountain. And it's one of those things too, where I go back to opening this mountain in stages. And as much as it was a tough winter for snowmaking, especially in the start, it was kind of a blessing in disguise for us because while we were trying to conquer the lift work that needed to get done and really came down to just a software upgrade was what we were waiting on. We were able to get all of these portable guns into locations and continue to make snow to the top for our two routes down that do have snowmaking. And I will have a much different outlook this year now that we're, we're so far ahead of where we were when we we started that, you know, be in a much different position in regards to the weather. But we kind of really capitalized with the existing inventory and, and what we had. And it takes an immense amount of responsibility and planning, moving ahead and expanding our snowmaking system. And it would be a total lie to say that it's not my goal to be 100% covered in snowmaking down the line, but it's really trying to precisely grow this business at a rate that can be sustainable to make sure that we don't jump the gun necessarily and really protect our investors and their investment and grow this business organically as much as possible. So that way we can look down to the road of future capital investment to get to that goal. So for this year, some of our improvements that we're looking to improve upon is really expanding a new route down from the summit and expedite the speed at which we can get open from the summit down and, and the purchase of a couple more fixed permanent guns. And that's how we're going to approach this. We're going we're gonna to break it down into stages and really try to tackle one thing at a time that we can and hopefully reach that goal one day of, of getting up to 100% coverage.
1: You know, it's a bigger mountain than it sounds like, Keith. And I was struck by that while I was skiing around. It, it's beefy, right? It's big, It's like a big, steep chunk of mountain. And when you get out there, you feel like it really gives you some good fall line skiing. And there's a lot of mountain that's not being used. And I I don't typically talk about mountain biking. But I do want to talk about it in this context because I think it could have an impact on the skiing experience. So you recently announced that you're building a lift served mountain bike park and that construction is already underway. And the reason I think this is so interesting for the skiing folks is you have a couple of glades thinned out on Granite Gorge, but there's a lot of woods that haven't been touched and there's a lot of potential skiing out there. And my question for you today is where are you building those mountain bike trails And do you anticipate some of that terrain being able to double as glade skiing? Because from what I've seen on your Instagram, it kind of looks like you're cutting through raw woods. And that might give us some interesting stuff to ski come winter.
0: Oh, absolutely. And that is precisely what the goal is. You know, I'm an absolute tree lover. (laughs) Um, If I don't have to cut down a tree, I will not. And we actually did put a lot of effort in, even in year one, to open up and rework some of the Glade Network as much as possible. And I remember just a quick story in terms of reinforcing my love for glade riding and everything that is all mountain and encompassing and what we have here at the gorge was i was grooming one night with my wife janelle one time at killington in that one year i was grooming and she had skied before but noticed a lot of tracks going off the trail and into the woods and she's like what is that and she's like people actually go down there and into the trees and i'm like be honest with you honey uh these trails are more of an interconnecting highway to get to the goods that are in the woods and that's always kind of stuck with me because when you get that snowfall there's something to be said about going off trail and enjoying the experience really in the woods and really what it was that this sport started with and granite gorge really does lend a tremendous opportunity to expand our glade network and we were very fortunate enough to have a really good snowstorm that actually got us to 100% open. So we actually rode off the top of the lift. And a lot of the work that the guys and our crew put into preseason really paid off. And being able to ride two glades right from the start, venture out and uh, with Zoli Glade. And they were absolutely tremendous. But for the bike park development, we're really trying to focus on beginner's And trying to mirror what we did in the wintertime. And we aren't the big resorts. If I didn't have my background in mountain biking and the mountain operations side of it, I don't think it would be financially feasible to dive in outsourcing a lot of this work for such a small ski area to be developed. But I've been able to meet Mark Hayes from Highland Bike Park. He invited myself and my uh, lift maintenance manager, James, up to explore their operation and, and their bike carriers. And one of the hurdles we're facing is how to develop bike carriers for a double lift. And we've done a lot of work with SkyTrans who are are custom designing a a model pole design for us to be able to haul bikes up with our lift and really accentuate the terrain that we do have because it is steep. So we, we are very limited on what we can to develop, but we're trying to do that in a way that will both benefit the skier and the mountain biker as we progress and develop. And, you know, we have a good long term plan that's really coming to fruition now as we develop this bike park, because we will not survive without being able to offer that summer venue and another place for people to recreate. And to be honest with you, looking back at the community, we already have a huge biking community to begin with, with a lot of volunteer trail built in different areas around town where people can cross country ride and there's the rail trails and and stuff for families. But you got to drive a little bit of a ways up to Highland to be able to experience that downhill experience. And for us, I think we're looking at this as an opportunity to be one of the first feeder hills for mountain biking and to be able to really bolster the growth of the whole industry as a whole. And it really comes down to recognizing who we are, embracing that. And while we are steep and gnarly and that has its place, being able to focus on growing new people to come into both mountain biking and skiing and snowboarding will be pivotal for our, our future.
1: Yeah. So for those listening who may not be familiar with Highland Bike Park, that's a former ski area that's now in New Hampshire, that's now considered one of the best downhill mountain bike parks in the country. And actually, we have quite a few good ones in our region. Berkshire East or Thunder Mountain, as it's called in the summer, is not far from you. And they have a really extensive mountain bike operation. Obviously, Killington is lights out for that. And uh, Loon offers mountain biking. So there's a real opportunity for a feeder area, just as there are for ski areas in the Northeast. I'm looking at your trail map right now, Keith. Tell us
0: where these first trails will be in relation to the ski trails. Sure. So the first trails that we are cutting in, we're going to open with a green trail between Pinnacle and Sunset. It's more towards the right of the lookers on the map and will be in between those woods that we can eventually turn into glades as well as we, as we finish and map up because that's really the terrain that allows us to be focused on that beginner terrain and development. And then going forward, you know, there's other areas for different Flow and, and tech trails and really expand on our offering and maximize the space that we do have available. This is going to be great
1: and it's going to be a lot of fun for the more advanced skiers who come up or the, the those who want to progress. Ultimately, Keith, from my point of view, Granite Gorge in its current incarnation is going to live and die on a couple of things, and, and I think really it involves getting the local youth involved and creating those pipelines. And the two things you need for that again, from my point of view, is night skiing and any school and youth programs, so season-long programs, racing, you know, after-school programs. Just talk about those things and what you were able to put in place the first year. And then long-term, what is the opportunity to really build out that night skiing and those programs? And also, I'll throw a park in there since you're a park guy. I mean, obviously, the kids who are in the local area, they're only going to ride a smaller hill for so long. They want the jumps and everything else. So, so just talk about all of that stuff and kind of what your vision is to be able to build this place out kind of as a tailor-made hill for youth.
0: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You hit those points perfectly, Stuart. And I think your assessment is right on point. And it also really made me think strongly on what is our model? How how can we do this? And, and how can we help the community to get them what they need? And it, it really did drive our, our operational outlook on how we approach things and how we do some things differently than some of our surrounding neighbors and ski areas do. And we really do really thrive on our night skiing. Every trail that does have snowmaking on it is lit for night skiing. And we actually really built our core business model Although be it a little bit more expensive to to run those lights as much as we do, but we have more or less a, a delayed opening. And I, re- I really took a page off of stuff that I learned from Pat Morgan, who is now currently at Mountain Creek. But when he was doing his work down at Jack Frost Big Boulder, they knew what their market was and what they wanted to grow. and. You know, they opened up later in the afternoon, so that's kind of what the approach that we took as well took a page off of Jack Frost Big Boulder, and we ended up opening our doors probably around that three o'clock range, uh, and then we would close down nine o'clock at night, and really kind of service that after school program and that mentality. And then really looking forward, I've been fortunate enough to work with my my wife, and the biggest thing I think that we have as an asset from a customer standpoint is that we do have five kids, and I will not deny the fact that they are our guinea pigs. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, awesome. From everything. Yeah, you were skiing with your daughter the day I was there while snowboarding. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a heart attack in itself. Um, <laughs> seeing their progression and, and what we offer really translates directly into our guests. And with my terrain park background, I started in the industry at a time where things were huge and, and enormous. And I, I had to learn on things that I wish I didn't have to learn on. And you know, certainly paid the consequences for that. Um, <laughs> and I don't, weird. I don't want to take credit for this, but one of the things that I always said to a lot of my park staff at at Wyndham and and even here is, you know, the industry went under what I call the great regression. And it's the outlook on terrain parks that, you know, they got big so fast and the the amount of money that got put into these things and, and half pipes went from 16 feet up to 22 feet in What it really takes to build that out, I wanted to take a total different approach with Granite Gorge and really start small and start with features that everybody could ride and experience for the first time. That's how I found joy in the sport when I got started in Pennsylvania in my backyard and really try to hone in and grow their skills. Because one of the things that stood out to me working at Neshoba was this wasn't a very big place for sure. But to be able to offer a park and change up the amount of features that we had throughout the week, whether it be, you know, from our operational standpoint, one or two features a night that we would change up. By the time you got to the following weekend and you had those bigger crowds, you had a, virtually a, a brand new park experience every time you came. So it, it really kind of transponds in into if we can offer something that excites our guests and and knowing that you know eventually these people will move on because we are a small operation but if we can continue to change things up and keep it interesting for them that's going to be our main point for being able to retain guests for as long as we can and keep them excited about coming to the mountain and really how we design our bike trails and our glades and our parks and our snowmaking, it's all intertwined into one plan on how to keep things interesting and exciting. And being able to see the growth and development of, of my own kids in such a short amount of time has been a substantial driver for us and how we're proceeding with the development of all of these, these things.
1: I mean, it's so cool. You know, I, I was going to ask you about... Your family and I've talked to this about this with other operators. And even though this is an all-consuming job, it's cool that your kids get to be a part of it. And so you don't really have to be those, those hours at work are not grinding away and being away from them.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. First and foremost, my first job is is a dad, followed by husband, and then general manager. And I feel that our outlook as a nation and where we put our priorities, you know, we talk about work-life balance and things that I even discuss with my crew now who have been absolutely phenomenal. It's just you have to recognize that the times when it's required of you to really put it all in, those times happen. You need to be committed to to the business in that time, but with the understanding that I've been in that position as well and knowing how much family keeps you centered and guides you into better life, you know, you can only do this thing for so long. Ultimately, you know, we're born into this world with nothing and guess what? We're going to leave with nothing. So it's those relationships and how we build them and how we conduct ourselves that really should be what matters most and really being able to share the journey with my kids and hopefully with some of the guys on our staff, growing their own families, get to experience this too. It really be able to to give them a home and a place to experience the sport and, and fall in love with it. it is so catamount to us uh, and how we conduct our operation that it really is. It's a dream come true to have the opportunity to, to do this and have my kids along for the ride. I just hope that next year I don't fall into the same trap of DoorDash and how much <laughs> I had to order food just to get here. That's certainly took quite a bit away from us this year, I think. But, you know, live and learn. And the things that we learned will keep us going a whole lot better in the future. And I can't wait to see what just the next couple of weeks when we get underway is going to do to my children and, and their progression.
1: So I think as you look to really build a place that's for families, pricing is really at the heart of that, right? And in, in making folks feel like not only is it accessible from an ability standpoint and the way that you contour the mountain, but that they can actually afford it. So you set your season pass price pretty low. Started at three hundred nine for adults, three fifteen for juniors, uh, five and under is free. This year, you're, the, uh, right now, the adult pass is sitting at three fifty nine. Just curious about your philosophy around season passes here, Keith. And then also, you know, interesting that some places with mountain biking and skiing offer a joint pass, others don't. I'm curious if you've thought about that and maybe making a year round product when you get this mountain bike park open.
0: Yeah, no, sure. It's all fantastic questions and something that I've thought about at serious length. And for us, it's knowing who we are and what we're trying to offer to the community and stay affordable. One of the things that we really try to set up is is how can we keep that affordable and one of the things that I instituted was a two-hour and four-hour lift ticket. And you know, for a lot of people that would like to come a- and check this place out, we, they would want to have the ability to spend eight hours and just buy one lift ticket and, and spend all the time here. But I'm not going to pretend to be something that we're not. We're not a big hill. It's not going to take you, especially in an off winter where we don't have the best temps in the world and we're only relying on the terrain that we have snowmaking. It's not going to take you six hours to even to experience the place to the fullest. So we really try to divide that up and kind of use that as our advantage to keep costs down and make it affordable for families to come out and experience skiing and snowboarding for the first time in a more affordable manner and and really making sure that, you know, they're not cutting into their grocery bills to to try to to buy a lift ticket. And it's really that community focus and that financial responsibility that go hand in hand that we want to keep costs as low as we can, especially starting up in a a year where, you know, we saw energy prices going up 30 percent. You know, how, how do we balance all of that? So I think for us, just taking it one step at a time and really staying focused on who is coming to us first within the keen community is paramount and making sure it's affordable. And of course, we would love to usher in different past programs like the Indy Pass and stuff like that. It's just I feel that that is something that we need to tackle when I feel that we are ready to do so. Uh, We are very limited on parking here at the mountain, and it's a problem that plagues a lot of different mountains. But for us, it's a real constricting, limiting factor. So that, in turn, lets us to have some turnover and create the opportunity for others to experience us without being overcrowded or overburdened. It all goes back to that experience that our, our guests are having. So it really is what is driving our decisions in terms of our passes. And we've definitely had a lot of people that approached us about our low season pass rate. And, you know, of course you have all the, the other Epic passes and, and stuff that have really made skiing affordable from a a value standpoint. And, you know, I I do commend the amount of work that they've been able to do, especially at Vail resorts to really make things affordable and, and to give people options. I just think for people that are looking to get back into the sport, those passes generally tend to be very local. And, you know, we're going to really try to embrace that outlook first and see where that growth takes us. And we're always going to be continue to look for other opportunities in the future of how we can change and better suit our guests.
1: How's the reception been to that pass so far, Keith? You are up against, I mean, you mentioned the Epic Pass. You're not too far from Crotched. The Northeast Midweek Epic Pass is just $416. The Value Pass, which is basically unlimited at all of the New England ski areas on Epic except for Stowe, is just $555. I mean, that is a phenomenal price point when you consider all the access you get. And, you know, you're sitting lower than that, but not so much lower that that it's a no-brainer. So, you know, has the reception been good? Has the appetite been there? Has the local community been buying that pass?
0: Yeah, actually, we did a early bird trial for a season pass sales and we allotted a a certain amount of pass sales. Those sold out for us in a, a matter awesome. of about three days. Cool. Love that. So we don't want to oversell it. We want to make sure that we don't become overcrowded by any means. I mean, you show up to this place right now and you're you're going to have the place to yourselves. So I think it's balancing that financial responsibility and, and the quality that our guests are, are looking to experience now. That's going to be at the forefront of our minds. And we really did pay close attention to what those entry points are. And, and a lot of the feedback that we got for a lot of those other passes is that they do have tremendous value. And for the people that want to commit to being able to ride a lot of different amount of days at different resorts, that passes for them. And I think for people who want the opportunity to not travel as far and get more time in on the slopes locally is also equally as important. And, you know, the reception has been pretty stellar. And I've met a number of families who do have Uh, Epic passes and and other reciprocal passes that are are out there that still came and and bought season passes with us as well. So that really speaks volumes to, I think, our, our pricing strategy and making sure that the guest is taken care of. And we're really looking to elevate the bar as we go forward, too, with with all the adjustments And, you know, we're definitely looking into incorporating a pass that will encompass all seasons here. You know, we're looking to expand our operations. And I think that we will come up with products in the future that will reflect that and and bring more value to everything. And that's just kind of where we're sitting right now.
1: Love it, Keith. All right. With that, I will give you your day back. I really cannot thank you enough for the time. I know that we've been talking about this one since you got named general manager. And I really wanted you to get through a season so we could tell that story congratulations to you and the team. I think you've set this place up for long-term success and to become something really special in New Hampshire. So really looking forward to see how this thing evolves and getting back up there and, and maybe skiing some of those mountain bike trails through the woods <laughs> next winter.
0: Awesome, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. And it, it's been a quite a a humbling experience to be able to even take part in this podcast that i've certainly looked up to you know listening to other general managers and and other people in our industry to learn from and i can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today anytime keith you absolutely crushed
1: it thank you very much (laughs) that's keith kreischer general manager of granite gorge new hampshire you crushed it keith you crushed it bringing Granite Gorge back from the dead and you crushed it on the podcast really incredible job with both thank you so much for that and thank you all for listening tons more pods on the way in fact I have a few more lined up for you Team New Hampshire Dartmouth Skiway coming up in a couple weeks here and Aditash in the fall more New England too with the leaders of Mount Snow and Killington Book you will also be hearing from the leaders of Stevens Pass China Peak Great Divide Montana Schweitzer, Idaho, Keystone, and many more. To get those episodes the moment they're live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers will receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.